0: share with you briefly what this is, where we are, what we're doing. For those of you who are with us for the first time or first of a few times, this may be your first mobile worship. Mobile worship is just that. It's just going to a different place in town, being intentional about doing what we do every Sunday in a different place. It's kind of um, a—it's good for our people as a church. It reminds us that the church is not a building. You think it's just semantics to say we're going to church— it's more than semantics, and that's what we've all been conditioned to, or most of us. We say we're going to church, then what we do is when we go someplace and do the things that the things of God, or the people of God do, then what we do is contain the work of God to a space in town, a location, and even a day of the week. If we say we're going to church, and that just happens on Sunday, what are we doing the rest of the week? It's more than semantics. We are the people of God every day of the week, and we're agile and mobile. We can worship here on a East side, is that where we are? East, southeast side of town. We can worship on the south side of town. Next month, the first Sunday of next month in December, we're going to worship on the north side of town. There's an old park up there that we have not visited yet. And we're going to worship there and we're going to visit the neighborhoods and streets and things around that side of town and trying to connect to some families there. So if you're here for the first time, it's a treat and a blessing to have you. Uh, I want you to know what we're doing, why we're doing it. This is the same thing we do next Sunday. Lord willing, if he doesn't come back first. And I'm glad you made the transition to find your way here. I just have this terrible fear about people showing up over at the building on Sunday morning and think that the rapture has come and they got left. (laughs) And um, so I'm glad you made the transition. I want to open us in prayer and um, pray for a few things before we begin. Lord, what a blessing to be here. We first, before we even climb into your word and enjoy you together I want to pray for this school. Thank you for the opportunity to worship here physically. And I want to pray for the ministry that's going on here to uh, children and young people and teaching them and training them in righteousness. Lord, I pray that the teachers will be fueled by worship and wonder. I pray that the administration will be fueled by worship and wonder. I pray that the parents will not depend solely on the teachers to train their children in righteousness, but that they will partner with teachers. Lord, I pray that you will be specially enjoyed in this physical location here on this property five days a week as they gather for school. Lord, again, we count it a sweet privilege, and uh, we're grateful for the chance to worship here this morning. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for Luke and Emily Panter. I pray for Emily, Lord, for her recovery. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you will just give them such a sense of your presence, your um, care for them, your love for them, as you bring her to uh, recovery, if it's your will, Lord, we pray that that this church, that is following uh, Luke's leadership, Lord, that they uh, that they will rally around them, that they will enjoy the Lord together and trust you together. Lord, we pray that in Quinlan, that this church that they're part of and that they're leading, that this church will enjoy you out loud. Lord, I pray for the ministry that Luke has to Emily, and not even in this, not just in this time where she is. Uh, Is sick right now and recovering, but even just between Sundays, just during a normal week and month, that Luke is pouring himself out for her like Christ poured himself out for the church. Lord, I pray that his ministry to her is a picture of the church. I thank you that it's a picture of the church. I pray that his ministry toward her will be just like the ministry that I have toward Christy, will be just like the ministry that other pastors have toward their wives, and that whole churches would see their leadership focusing on that primary ministry to our spouse first, then to our families, and then to our church family. Lord, we pray that you'll be honored in that design. Thank you for the sweet privilege of putting the gospel on display in our marriages. Lord, this morning also I want to pray for our time of worship. I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond any of us. I pray for an ability to communicate that I know is beyond me. I pray for a message that just hits our hearts and gives us a song. Or thank you so much for the sweet privilege of gathering together and climbing into your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me encourage the kids before we begin. Kids, just because you're kids doesn't mean that we don't expect a lot of you. You can get a lot out of this sermon this morning if you listen. So I encourage you, don't be a distraction to your mom and dad. And really focus on what's being said here in these next few minutes. And you'll be blessed too. A couple months ago, I loaded up with a family, and we went on a trip around the country. We were the first month of our sabbatical, and we uh, traveled for the first month of it. And we drove up to um, Mount Rushmore and then over west, over to Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and all kind of places. And we were doing lots of driving, as you might expect. And it's funny, whenever we drive, or whenever I drive, usually, Christy does some driving. I don't want to discount her. Where is she? I want to discount her driving. I see her back there. She would call me out if I discredited her driving participation. She drives some, but usually I'm driving. And I don't know what it is about my driving, but it's sort of a sedative for her. And she sleeps so well. I mean, mouth ajar, flies going in and out. She doesn't even know it. So here I am driving, driving around the country. That Christy's asleep. The kids are watching a video or listening to some sort of audio on their headphones, and, and I'm thinking. I don't even have the radio on. And I'm thinking, and it's always funny kind of mapping a thought process. I don't know if you've ever done that, where you turn to one another and say, how did we get here? And you think back at how you got there, and it's crazy how our minds work. But anyway, I'm driving, and I'm, here's my thought process. I began thinking about this movie that I saw recently. It's called Into the Wild just kind of get a sense of how many of you have seen that movie. A few of you? Okay. Into the Wild, now I'm going to share some of the details, but I'm not going to get all the facts perfectly. So, so those of you who are real Into the Wild groupies, don't, don't beat me up. I'm going to get the general story for you. Basically, it's a story about a young man who graduates from college and is so disenchanted with the lives of his parents, he's do- so disenchanted with the establishment in general, that he walks away from all of it. Over the course of the story, he leaves the establishment, kind of in shifts, almost like shingles of establishment falling off, where he leaves things progressively, gives his money away. One of the most remarkable parts of the movie is where he leaves his old car, and he just takes off on foot. He leaves everything until he ends up living in the wilds of Alaska. If you've seen the movie, you know that basically he lived in an abandoned bus, He just steps off into the backcountry. He crosses this trickle of a stream and finds this bus. I still don't know how the bus got there, but it's for real there. And he moves into this bus, and he lives there for a while. He hunts. He forages. And he lives there, and he records in his journal. He's just kind of walked away from everything, living as a loner. One of the things I remember that he wrote in his journal was something to the effect that, man, life is not worth living by yourself. And that's kind of a turning point for the movie where he begins to plan his departure. He gathers his stuff up, and he heads back to that previously just a trickle of a stream, and he finds this river that's just flowing that would be impossible to cross. It comes from the, off the, the uh, snow caps melting, and he realizes that he's going to have to stay there. Now, little did he know there was a Ford not that far away, but he goes back to the bus. The story progresses where he eventually ends up eating some sort of poisonous berry somehow, and it slowly kills him. He eventually, eventually, ultimately starves to death out there. You watch him, if you you pay attention to the movie, or if you see it, his belt gets tighter and tighter, and he has to poke a new hole in his belt until he's just emaciated to the point where he just dies. He starves to death alone in a bus. So I was thinking about this movie, and as my thoughts progressed, I moved to considering... How much I enjoyed, from considering how much I enjoyed the movie to considering why I enjoyed the movie. While this guy's life was pretty remarkable, for me, what really made the movie was the music. The guy that does the soundtrack for the movie Into the Wild is a guy named Eddie Vetter. And to me, Eddie, Eddie Vetter's voice is just the picture of this growly, folksy voice. He could sing about cardboard and I'm going to be looking for a box. And this guy's just incredible. A perfect folk singer voice. And he's singing behind this guy's move every part of his journey away from the establishment is put to this growly folksy music that just sticks in your head and i'm thinking i'm driving and i'm thinking man that was a good soundtrack and then i'm thinking you know it's music that makes a movie it's the soundtrack that makes the drama I'll give you an example. Many of you, most of you probably have watched a horror movie. Or kids, you may not have a, You might, may not have yet, but you probably will. Try this when you do. Next time you watch a horror movie, I'm not really into them, but I've done this before. Or when you're really scared, just, just hit the mute. And then you're like, oh man, it's not scary anymore. <laughs> Why is that? All that drama came from the sounds behind the movie. Evan observed this a couple of weeks ago. Evan is our oldest She was sitting with Luke and Daniel, and they're watching a documentary on praying mantises. We don't have TV at home. We were visiting my family in Louisiana, so even a documentary, we have a TV, but no cable, so it's just snow. So even a documentary on praying mantises is going to be entertaining. So they're captivated with this thing, and it's showing these big close-ups of this big praying mantis. And this thing is killing other bugs. It's showing what praying mantises do best, killing other bugs and Evan turned around, she made this observation, she said, you know, it's funny, it sounds like every time the praying mantis kills another bug, somebody's banging away on a piano. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there it is again, there it is again, this dedicated, wild, crazy piano player banging away, and you know what I'm talking about, the drama that comes from dun dun, dun 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 And Evan picked up on it, and I realized, yet again, music is the drama, So anyway, I'm behind the wheel thinking about Eddie Vedder crooning about the Into the Wild guy. And I thought to myself, I'm still driving. I gave a lot of extra information here. All this didn't happen while I was driving. But I'm still driving, and I'm thinking how funny it would be to have some guy following me around singing about my every move. Eddie Vedder, man folksy growly folksy guy singing behind my every move imagine it you're doing your laundry you're sorting the darks from the lights and somebody's singing man and their hearts in it it would add some drama and some meaning to laundry or imagine that Eddie Vedder or some other maybe a wild piano player is playing behind while you scrub rinse and repeat Scrub, rinse, and repeat. How awesome would that be? Such meaning and such drama would be in life. And I'm laughing to myself at this point. Just, you know, that weird train of thought. I'm not laughing out loud for fear of waking Christy up, but I'm laughing. And then my thoughts turned serious. And I thought to myself about this dude, this Into the Wild rebel that left everything. I hadn't yet had the praying mantis account yet, but I'm thinking about the Into the Wild guy, and I'm thinking to myself, man, he had his singer. He had his music. Where's my music? I thought to myself, man, I want some music. The Into the Wild guy has got his. He left everything, died poisoned in a bus. Rocky had his. Man, they're singing about him while he's eating raw eggs. He's putting on a skull cap and a sweatsuit and going running around the streets of Philadelphia, and there's somebody singing. He's climbing steps, running higher. You know the song. He's sprinting down the beach, the eye of the tiger, man. He's got his own singer dedicated to singing for him. Where's my music? Right now, as I've been preparing this, I'm thinking even the praying mantis has his own wild pianist. Where's my music? It grew serious as I thought, man, I want some music behind my ordinary life as I drive down the Idaho interstate in our maroon minivan loaded with family food and camping gear. I want some music. So since then, it's been a couple of months since this happened, I've been doing some research on our music. I want to find my music. And I think I've gotten to it. I think I've found our music. It's been there all along. It's not some big discovery but that's where we're going to go this morning. Turn to Psalm 118. You're going to need your Bibles this morning. If you have the English Standard Version, I'm going to give you page numbers. If you don't have the English Standard Version, that might be an incentive to go get you one because you can just jump right to the page numbers. You can't get it right now. Stay put for now, next week. Psalm 118 is on page 511 of the English Standard Version. (coughs) This psalm is likely written by David. It's a song about God's deliverance. Someone's after him, or a group of people are after him, and he's delivered by God. And he writes this psalm about it. I want to show you first, I want to make a case this morning. First of all, that this is David's song, and then I'm going to introduce someone else to you or another people to you and show you that it's their song and then I'm going to introduce yet someone else closer to us and then I'm going to show you that this is our song and then I'm going to show you some application things that we can walk away with. So I want you to make the journey with me starting here in Psalm 118 verse one <coughs> Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. We don't know that David wrote this psalm, but I want to give you a couple of pictures that tell me that David's fingerprints are on it. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear What can man do to me? That sounds like a guy that's faced giants to me. Look also at verse 10. It says, All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. This sounds like David the warrior. So much of his time and his reign over Israel was characterized by all these people surrounding him, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Philistines. They're all surrounding him. They're like a bunch of bees. He's saying, but I cut them off, and the Lord was my strength to get it done. This is a song of a saint. That would be 3,000 years ago. I want to give you a couple markers. I want you to understand how this story folds. I'm going to introduce you to a few people. I'm going to give you an approximation about where they fall out in time. Abraham was about 2,000 years before Christ. Moses was about 1,500 years before Christ. David was about 1,000 years before Christ. And another place we're going to go in a minute, the Babylonian exile was about 500 years before Christ. Abraham, 2,000. Moses, 1,500. David, 1,000. Babylonian exile, 500. Those will all be, not all of them, but some of them will be important. 1,000 years before Christ, here's someone singing about the saving work of the Lord. But this wasn't just David's song. Turn to Ezra, chapter (coughs) 3. Ezra, chapter 3. It's on page 390 of your ESB. (coughs) You may remember Ezra's story. Some of you might be like, man, who's Ezra? So I'm going to give you kind of a little quick cliff notes, a little thumbnail sketch of who he was and what his story was. Basically, after David came these series of kings. And if you've read your Bible, 1st and Chronicles, 1st and Kings, you know that it was a roller coaster of good king, bad king, good king, bad king, loser, champ, loser, champ, love the Lord, turn, the, turn on the Lord and worship idols. It's just this high and low roller coaster that goes all the way to the Babylonian exile. Basically what happened is, through their unfaithfulness, God, through Isaiah, prophesied that you guys are going to go into exile almost like you did in Egypt, that wasn't due to unfaithfulness, but you were under in bondage for 400 years in Egypt, you're going to go into sort of another pseudo-Egypt. It's called Babylon. This time it's going to be due to your unfaithfulness, due to the highs and lows of the leadership of the people and how they followed these losers and winners. So he says, you're going to go into exile, into Babylon, This due to Israel's unfaithfulness. So about 500 years before Christ They go into Babylon and exile some contemporaries, just to give you kind of a bird's-eye view of your Bible. Ezekiel fits in right there. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all in that same time frame. Our Bibles are not chronological. Okay? Now, basically, what they are, they're in exile in Babylon. And they're singing a song of heartbreak, Psalm 137, if you want to read it tonight. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and there we wept. As we remembered Zion, as they remembered home, the nation of Israel is heartbroken while they're in Babylon. So God raises up men to lead them home. Two of those men were Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are going to lead portions of the nation of Israel to go back and build Jerusalem. Nehemiah will focus on the wall. Ezra will focus on the temple. Now, let me read this passage to you. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Now in the second year, after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Remember, Ezra's focusing on the temple. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of hinadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Listen now. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, that's their Sunday best, y'all. And they put on their duds. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. They were apparently pretty musical, too. They bust out their trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals. Corey Pfeiffer is out there banging away on the cymbals to praise the Lord. Listen to what he says. We're going to do something here according to the directions of David, king of Israel. I'm going to show you that these guys are singing David's song in 118. 500 years later, it says that according to the directions of David, king of Israel, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Listen to what they say. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That sound familiar? For his steadfast love endures forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. See, this wasn't just David's song singing about the enemy being cut off and how God delivered him. This ends up being Ezra and the temple builders' song too. Remember, that psalm was riddled with the phrase, His steadfast love endures forever. It starts with it. It ends with it. It's all through it. Imagine being part of the building team. You're in Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, weeping. Oh man, I'm remembering Zion. My heart's broken. And then someone says, I'll lead you back. And Ezra leads you and your family back to Jerusalem. And you get about building the temple. And you build the foundation, the most critical part of the temple. And you're looking for a song to sing to commemorate it? You turn to Psalm 118 and man, there it is. A song to celebrate. A song to commemorate. It looks like these guys are looking for their music too. They're asking the same question that I asked on the interstate in Idaho as I'm driving my minivan. Where's my music? And they found it in Psalm 118. I want to show you. Go back to Psalm 118. You can kind of, I don't think even you'll need to keep a finger in Ezra. Go back to Psalm 118. I'm going to show you some things. First of all, in verse 5, I want to show you why it would be appropriate for these builders of the temple foundation to sing this song. In verse 5, it says, Out of my distress, and their distress being that they're in a foreign land. Imagine if somebody comes and grabs you and your kids. You have to leave everything. They throw you in their wagon and they take you to some foreign land. And they're doing things, they're worshiping things that are just an abomination to you. That would be distress. This is an appropriate song for them to sing while they're standing around looking at the finished foundation. They're singing, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. By the rivers of Babylon, there we wept. It says, the Lord answered me and set me Free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Basically, they've been given permission by their captors, Babylonians, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's an appropriate song for them to sing because they know who turned the heart of the king. They didn't strong arm the king. Somebody else, the living God, turned the heart of the king. I said, okay, I'll give Ezra permission. I'll give Nehemiah permission. Y'all go on back. They know who led them out of the heartbreak of Babylon. Now look at verse 10. It says, all nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. Just like David's story, these guys had, it was a, Perfectly appropriate song. These guys are surrounded by enemy too. If you read the story of Nehemiah and the story of Ezra, they've got hecklers, tormentors. They've got harassers surrounding them. They even have people tattling on them. How about that? They're trying to rebuild the temple foundation, and somebody's saying, hey, I'm going to send word to Babylon. The Israelites are rebuilding the temple, king of Babylon. Bunch of tattlers. They've got tormentors, they've got harassment, they've got hecklers, and they've even got tattlers. But they are singing the song, I cut them off. Surrounded by them like bees, but I cut them off. Look at verse 22. This is a key, key verse. If there's anything I want you to just embrace this morning will be the way this verse unfolds in the rest of our story this morning. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I want you to realize that they're rebuilding the temple. It's already been built once and completely leveled. So they're rebuilding something with rubble. If you're going to build something with rubble, it's not going to be as shiny the second time around as it was the first time around. And their song is perfect here. Because they point out the stone that the builders rejected maybe the first time has been rejected. And guess what? Now it's the cornerstone. It's the unlikely stone. It's the least likely candidate to be put in that foundation. And guess what? It's the shiny penny. In fact, if you've read the rest of that story in in Ezra chapter 3, right after that account I just read, it says that the young men cheered and sang and the old men wept because they remembered what the old one looked like. They wept. You couldn't even make out who was weeping and who was singing for joy because of this ugly old cornerstone used from the rubble. And they're singing about it. They're enjoying the fact that it's the unlikely one. That's going to come back around in a minute. Now look at verse 23. David writes, Ezra and his Levites sing. They blow their trumpets. Corey Pfeiffer's banging away on the cymbals. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. These guys are giving God the glory for the rebuilding. He did the work and they're enjoying Him in Psalm 118. First, it was the song of a saint, a guy named David. And I hope I've made the case that it's a song of a bunch of Old Testament dudes rebuilding the temple. It's the same song. And it's an appropriate song for God's people. It was David's song, it's Ezra's song, and the Levite's song. And I want to show you now that it's Peter's song. Peter, you know, the knuckle-headed Peter that walked with Jesus and did some of the dumbest things you've ever seen or heard in your life. That Peter that Christ is going to build his church on. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. <coughs> 1 Peter chapter 2, it's on page 1014 of your ESV. It's David's song, it's Ezra's song, it's the Levite's song. I'm going to show you right now that it's Peter's song. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter is writing to New Testament saints. And here's what he says. He says, Believers, as you come to Him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. As you come to this Christ, this living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever builds in him or believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for, who, but for those who do not believe, listen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I'm making the case that Peter's singing the same song here. He's tied to Psalm 118. He likely knows Ezra's story too. He points to, first of all, Christ being the living stone rejected by men. Does that sound familiar? Building with rubble? Let's take the unlikely stone and put that as the cornerstone. The least likely. Born of a virgin in Bethlehem, a pauper. Riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem. Stone rejected by men. Peter has 118 on his mind. Look at verse 5. He says, You, you believers, you are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, a spiritual temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's the same story. I told Christy this morning, I said, I don't know if anybody's going to make the journey with me, but if people do, they're going to see an incredible connection between David just writing this psalm. He has no idea 2,000 years before that it's going to be fully realized 2,000 years later through this Jesus. He has no idea that 500 years later that Ezra and the rest of the nation of Israel would be singing that song, and it would be perfectly appropriate. David and Ezra have no idea that 1,500 years later that it would be realized in the finished work of Christ. And as Peter wrote this, he had no idea that we 2,000 years later would still be singing this same song. Peter has pieces of David in this and chunks of Ezra. And Peter sees that this is his story and that it's the song of the people he's writing to the New Testament believers. I've been looking for my music. And I've been looking for our music. And this psalm teaches me much about our music. Like David, we needing deliverance that only God can provide. Like Ezra and the builders... We're called out of Babylon by men like Ezra and Nehemiah. They're called elders. They're called shepherds that are in your home, that are beckoning to a people. Don't build mansions in Babylon. Let's go build the temple. Like Ezra and the builders, we're called out of Babylon of a fallen world. Like Ezra, we're surrounded with bee like hecklers and tormentors and critics. If we're really about His work. Like Peter, we're celebrating that God is building a spiritual house made of unlikely people. Like me and you, as His own people. I've been looking for my music and yours, and i found that the saints have a song. Indeed, we have a song, and it's a song of enduring love. His love endures forever. It's a song about enduring love poured out on a dark, wicked, undeserving world. It's a song about a God who saves. You want music like I do? Here's your music about a love that's lavished on us. What I want to do in the remainder of the morning is to show you three things that are characteristic of our music from Psalm 118. Go back there. I want you to make this journey with me because you'll see such beauty in our music. Back there at Psalm 118, beginning in verse 23, it says, This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. David sang it and said, the Lord did this. Ezra and the Levites sang it as they're looking at this laid foundation. And they're saying, the Lord did did, did this. This is the point of the trajectory of the Song of the Saints. Unlike Into the Wild, this song about a rebel. Unlike Rocky, this song about a boxing meathead in Philadelphia. Unlike the PBS Praying Mantis wild, crazy piano player, the music behind our lives isn't about us. If anything, it's about something that's been done to us, for us. It's about something outside of us. We're not the center of the Song of the Saints. Instead of someone singing behind you, While you drive, (laughs) like my desire, where's my music? Instead of someone singing behind you while you wash, scrub, rinse, and repeat. Instead of someone singing behind you while you sort lights and darks. Someone singing behind you while you eat raw eggs, run up steps, kill bugs. We're the singers in the Song of the Saints. And we're singing behind a God who's done and is continuing to do a mighty work. That's how our song is different. We're not at the center of it. It's about something outside of us that's been done to us and for us. It's about the otherness of a gracious God. We're not singing about ourselves, although we love that. Y'all laughed when I said, how cool would it be to have somebody singing about your laundry? That would add some drama, wouldn't it? It's Because we like things that are about us. We are not at the center of this. We're not singing about ourselves. The Song of the Saints is a song about the glory and wonder and grace and mercy and faithfulness of a God who is spirit, a God who is infinite, a God who is eternal, unchangeable, wise, powerful, holy, just, good, and true. All the things that we are not. Thinking about the contrast of all these examples I've used. The Into the Wild, the Rocky, the Praying Mantis. Consider this regards to the the Song of the Saints, where ours is about God. Consider this reality that God didn't die in a bus with a half written journal. God won't go out in a sequence of increasingly tired sequels. Rocco. And our God won't be crushed underfoot by a pygmy in the Amazon like a praying mantis. For the cornerstone of our song, the cornerstone of our spiritual house is a living stone. That's the stone we're singing about. Second thing is in verse 14. It's probably my favorite reality of this passage because i just so enjoy what david says here he says the lord is my strength and my song he has become my salvation david said god is my strength and my song he doesn't say god is just something that makes me stronger god isn't protein powder He doesn't say God is something that makes me strong or God is something that I like to sing about. He says God is my strength and my song. Essentially, he's saying God is the tune, God is the words, God's the focus, the direction, the air that slides across the vocal cords to project the words. He's not something to sing about, He is our song. He's not something for us to just think about. He is to be what our minds are consumed with. Our thoughts, our vision, the very substance of who we think we are will be found only in Him. He's not to be someone who gets some of our effort, some of our time, some of our words, some of our just focus. He gets all of it. If the Song of the Saints is a song where we're saying He is our strength and He is our song, then He is our everything. It'd be like the guy sitting with his woman. They're going to get married soon. He's sitting talking to her. And he's saying, babe, contrast this. He's saying, babe, you blessed my life. That's sweet, right? Compare it to this. Babe, you are my life. That's what David's saying right here. He's saying, you are my strength. You are my song. See, there's nothing moderate about the Song of the Saints. We use this sort of phrase and this terminology all the time when you say, man, that dude worships that. We use it in, return, in, in regards to pastimes, to hobbies, maybe even to someone else. We say, man, that dude worships golf. What are you saying when you say that? You mean, you're saying that dude is consumed with it. He's standing in line at Walmart. He's doing this. He doesn't even care who's looking. All he can think about is, man, I can't wait to get back to the golf course. That's who I am. I'm consumed with it because he worships it. Why would we think that the worship of God would be any different? Albeit in the wrong direction toward golf, man, it's in the right direction toward God because he's worthy of that. Remember, he's not dead in a bus with a half-written journal. He's not crushed underfoot by a pygmy in the Amazon. For he lives and he is our very song. There is no cruise control for the Song of the Saints. There's no moderation for the Song of the Saints. There's no room for temperance when it comes to worship. Worship does not ask, What's the minimum I must do to keep my superior being happy? Worship says, Is there anything that I won't do for the object of my affection? And if there is, please liberate me from that because you're so worth it. That's the Song of the Saints. God is my song and my salvation. It's overboard, it's extreme, it's consumed, it's radical, it's intense, it's obsessive. That's the song of the saints. The third and last thing, look in verse 22. Remember, I told you this going to come around. Verse 22, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become... The cornerstone. Our God builds on the unlikely. Our God builds on the unlikely and unimpressive. Listen to this passage. Don't turn there because I'm already there. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God chose what is foolish. Here, ugly rubble. Ugly broken up stone. God cho- chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And the reason I share that, that's the character of our God. It's the character of our God to choose and use the unlikely and the seemingly insignificant and routine, and mundane. Last passage I'm going to show you. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's on page 151 of your pew bibles. I want you to engage this. Shepherds, if you're at a point right now where you're thinking, man, some of y'all might be thinking, man, we've been walking with this church for a little while, and we're like, ooh, we're talking about Elders meeting in our homes periodically to kind of hold us accountable and shepherding our, our families. And, man, I was kind of okay with it up to that point, but I just I don't think I can do this. This is hard. This will be an encouragement to you. If some of you have been trying to be about it and you feel like, man, I sure wish I had some cheerleaders around here in the morning. Go, Ben. G-O. Get your Bible out. B-I-B-L-E. Go, Go, Ben. When I sit down with my family, if you've been thinking that, this will be an encouragement to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Does that sound like what we were just talking about? Song of the Saints is full throttle. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. The reason I take you to that passage, shepherds and people of God, is because God wants you to realize the thing that we've been charged with doing, this was charged with the old Israel and now the new Israel is to be about the very same thing. And guess what? God chooses thee seemingly insignificant. He builds on the unlikely and the unimpressive. The Song of the Saints will seem mundane and insignificant because it's so unlike the world. There will be no movies made about you fathers and single moms sitting with your families reading your Bible. There will be no soundtracks produced. Eddie Vedder wouldn't even tackle that. There will be no one singing behind you, cheering you on. There will be no Rocky soundtracks behind a mommy praying with her kids. No one will be banging away wildly on the piano when you teach your families a critical truth about the living God. It'll be quiet. Crickets. But the people of God are about to work of going, Oh yeah, there's Psalm 118. There's a living song for a living people. Or being built up into a living house with our cornerstone who is, oh yeah, living. We're to be reminded of our song. We have a song. And we're to remind each other. Be about it. Be about that seemingly mundane and insignificant. The song of the saints plays behind an unlikely people about what to the world seems unimpressive. But the saints know better. Let me pray. Lord God, may we enjoy our song. Lord, I pray that in these last few minutes and in the few days that come, in front of us where shepherds talk with their families in the doors of their home, in their living rooms, with no cheerleader, with no Rocky, with no Eddie Vedder, with no wild pianist, that we will know that this is a a serious reality, something that we can build, something we can live on, something we can trust, that we can be full throttle about engaging our families with these sort of realities. Lord, I pray that as we engage our families with these truths, that the song of the world will be set up on display as a man-centered song that focuses on the person and the song of the saints will be put up on display that focuses on you who's so worthy. Lord, I pray that this little people will be about that song. Lord, I pray these little families will be about that enjoyment of the living God. Lord, I pray that you will be enjoyed. That your unending love will be the song on our lips. Thank you for Psalm 118. Thank you for David's time with you, enjoying you out loud. Thank you for Ezra and the Levites singing it yet again. Thank you for Peter reminding us. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will just remind us this is ours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to respond now in song, and we're not going to do kind of what that typical thing is where we sing a bunch of songs, and then we preach, and then we have one song that where you gather your stuff up, and you really thinking about lunch. We're going to respond to God now with a few songs that are especially appropriate, given Psalm 118 that we've just dined on together. Let's respond in song.